This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on 1 Samuel called Waiting for the Kingdom. Okay, we are going to turn again back to the book of 1 Samuel together. We've haven't had much time to continue our series in recent weeks with one thing or another, but we're going to try to pick that up again in 1 Samuel chapters 21 and 22. We're doing two chapters today, and we're going to turn there in a minute, but I just want to observe that there's probably very few of us gathered here today that feel like God has clearly spoken his word for our lives and that we are exactly where we expected we would be. Maybe you feel that way if you're young, but the further you go on, it feels, the more it feels like God is sending us down paths that we would rarely choose for ourselves. We would pick, of course, we would pick the short and the direct and the easy paths, but in his mysterious purposes, God seems to have sent us down long and winding roads, roads that appear to meander to no purpose and which we may even fear are leading us in the wrong direction. And so we're tempted to doubt God's love and wisdom and may even begin wondering, has God really spoken to us? Has he really met with us? Is he really committed to keeping the promises that he's made to us? As we read the pages of scripture, we discover that it's those difficult places that God sends us to so that we can grow in faith and nearness to him. And those wandering roads are where he always seems to send those that he loves, those that he has a special purpose for. So here we are in the last third of 1 Samuel. David has been secretly anointed by God. Amazing things have been prophesied over him. And he's gone on to kill Goliath. He's married the princess. And David seems to be smoothly ascending the escalator to the throne of Israel. And God's favor is clearly on David's life. And now perhaps David is expecting just one more step and he will be sitting on the throne. But after such a promising beginning, things have taken a bad turn in David's life. He hasn't tried to seize the throne for himself, but Saul the king who has been rejected by God, Saul is the man who is deeply paranoid. And now his paranoia is becoming more and more dangerous, murderous, in fact. And now David must leave Saul permanently and flee for his life. These last 10 chapters of 1 Samuel, the last third of the book, have David on the run. And they probably cover about 10 years, a full decade of David hiding out fearing for his life. And so we're going to read these two chapters. We're doing two chapters because it's really one story that I don't want to break in half. Um, so we're going to have a lot of scripture reading today. Hopefully that shouldn't be a matter for complaint. Um, but we're going to break it up into smaller sections and then kind of reflect on those together to see what God might be saying to us. So we're, we are in 1 Samuel chapter 21 to begin with, and I'm going to share this on my screen with you. Of course, you're welcome to um, open up your Bible yourself if you have them with you to follow along. So, here we go. First Samuel chapter 21. 
So David has just fled from Saul. And then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with the matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young man are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, there is none like that. Give it to me. Okay, we'll just pause and make a break over there. So now uh, Saul's son, Jonathan, David's friend, has confirmed Saul's intentions. Saul wants to kill David. And so David leaves Gibeah, Saul's capital city and headquarters, and heads down the road to Nob. Nob is only three miles away. And it's the place seemingly where the, um, the priests are conducting worship of God. And it's telling that David's very first instinct when he is in danger is to go to the sanctuary of God. And David arrives, and his presence creates suspicion in Ahimelech, the priest. He's shaking with fear when David shows up, because why is the captain of the royal bodyguard here, but he's not with the king? And he's heard rumors of strange things going on between Saul and David, deep tension between them. And Ahimelech knows that Saul is not the kind of person to be trifled with. Well, David has a story. He claims that he's on a secret government mission, that the king has sent him there. And it's clearly a fabricated story. I think David is telling this story in order to shield Ahimelech. He's trying to provide plausible deniability to Ahimelech so that if he's questioned by the king, Ahimelech can say with truth that he had nothing to do with trying to aid and abet someone who was on the run from the king. David thinks he's being clever. He thinks that he's managing the situation, but this is going to have terrible consequences for Ahimelech all the other priests at the sanctuary and the entire town. Had David been honest and straightforward, Ahimelech would have had the opportunity to decide for himself whether or not he wanted to get involved, whether or not he wanted to take on himself the risk of helping David. But now David has forced this decision on him through deceiving him, and it's the decision that David will come to regret. 
as we'll discover in First and Second Samuel, David is not a perfect person. He's not an ideal human being. He's a normal human being, and he's in a desperate situation, and he's making judgments on the run, and he's making mistakes. And David's time fleeing from Saul is going to be a journey and learning to trust God and to listen to his voice. David needs supplies. He asks for bread, but there's no common bread. There's only holy bread, the bread of the presence, the 12 loaves of bread that were laid out on a table in the sanctuary that seemed to symbolize God's faithful provision for the 12 tribes, 12 tribes who over and over again show that they didn't deserve God to feed them, but time and time again, God fed them nevertheless. And this is the bread that Ahimelech offers to David. David is an imperfect man. He is a flawed man, but David is still loved and chosen by God. And unlike Saul, David's sins don't come from a wicked and malicious heart. They're sins that arise from human weakness, falling into temptation, struggling to trust God in dangerous and desperate conditions. And after all, David at least is here at the sanctuary with open hands, pleading for help from God's priests. I think it's comforting for us to reflect that if we're on God's side, however great our faults, God is committed to taking care of us. God will discipline us for our sins. He'll teach us some hard lessons to make us stronger in faith. But God promises that he will always give his children what they need, especially when they're most desperate. So David is fed from God's table. But there's an ominous figure lurking in the shadows, and his name is Doeg, and he's an Edomite. He's not an Israel. He's from the people of Edom. And this was a people that Saul had gone to war with many times, and we wonder how Doeg ended up in Saul's service. Perhaps he was a mercenary who joined for the money. Perhaps he was a prisoner of war who switched sides. Nevertheless, Doeg is there. He's serving Saul. And he's a threatening figure in the background. In fact, the name Doeg sounds like the name for the word for worry in Hebrew. And David sees him there and has a bad feeling about this person. Doeg seems to be a thoroughly conniving and political man down to the soles of his sandals. He has no heart for God. We're not sure why he was there, but it wasn't out of genuine worship for God. Doeg is an opportunist and he's observing something he's going to use to his advantage later. David senses that something is wrong, something bad is developing, but he's in too much of a hurry to stop and deal with Doeg right now. David needs to hit the road, but before he does, he needs a weapon because he's come unarmed, and he requests and receives the sword of Goliath. The sword that David had won, the sword that David, in fact, had used himself to cut off the giant's head. And now somehow this uh, sword has ended up as a trophy in the sanctuary of God. It's hanging up there, covered in cloth, as a reminder of God's salvation in rescuing Israel from the Philistines. And now it goes back to its original owner as he hits the road and leaves the land of Israel. 
Let's keep on reading here as I share the screen with you again. Okay, we're in 1 Samuel 21, verse 10. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David has gone to a place where surely Saul would least suspect that he would go. David goes to Gath in the land of the Philistines. And he must have been incredibly desperate to do something so dangerous and even so reckless. We're not sure what was going through David's mind. Perhaps he hoped to go unnoticed, to hide out, hoping that no one would recognize him. Perhaps I think it's more likely that David was going to offer his services to the Philistines and perhaps had collected David's Goliath's sword as proof of his identity. Whatever the case, David has badly misjudged the situation in Goliath's hometown because Israel's enemies recognize him and they don't want him there. They describe him, interestingly, as the king of the land. Israel's enemy, enemies recognize the true king, even if Israel is unable to do that yet. And they quote to the king, or the, the king, they, uh, they quote the, song, the songs that Israel is singing about David, the celebration of how many Philistines that David has killed. And when David senses the mood in Gath, he realizes that he has put himself into a terrible position. He is very afraid. And David is a man who is able to think quickly on his feet, at least, and he pretends to be insane. He slobbers into his beard. He scratches nonsense on the doors. It's not David's proudest moment. He's fallen a long way. He has to deeply humiliate and shame himself in order to survive. King Achish is disgusted. And he wants David thrown out of his presence. He doesn't kill David because lunatics were thought to be possessed by the gods. It was taboo to kill them. But this is not the kind of person that he wants in his court. And David is evicted from the palace and probably from the city of Gath. We might read this as incredible resourcefulness on David's part, as quick-thinking cleverness. But it's not how David reflected on what had happened to him. If you go to Psalm 34, you'll see it's one of several psalms that David has written while he's on the run from King Saul. And Psalm 34, which we open worship with, is a song specifically written for this situation when God delivered David from the Philistines at Gath. In that psalm, he says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. What's going on behind the scenes in David's heart is another kind of journey. David is learning to lean on God. 
And he's discovering that God's deliverance comes in strange shapes and very odd packages, including prompting David to act like a lunatic. But that is one way that God saves, and that's what David experiences. Let's continue reading. We're in uh, 1 Samuel 21, verse 1, starting the next chapter. So David departed from there, from Gath, and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And they were with him about 400 men. David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please, let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. You know, there is no safe place for David to remain for long. He's a confirmed fugitive. There are wanted posters everywhere. And David must continually be, from the move, uh, be on the move. And you see in the story as it develops how David has moved from the center of power, a military commander, the captain of the bodyguard, uh, best friends with the crown prince. He's married the princess. David is moving from a position of human power to the fringes of society, from strength to weakness. And now David ends up in the cave of Adullam, which is in this mountainous no man's land between Israel and Philistia, the sort of lawless border area. And he's there hiding out in this cave and people begin to hear that David is there. His family join him, his elderly parents, his brothers, not necessarily out of great affection for David, but out of fear that one day Saul's troops will show up in Bethlehem to massacre David's family. And then more and more people began to join David, all the marginalized and disenfranchised, everyone who was a loser under the current system in Saul's kingdom, those who were in distress, those who were in debt, those who were bitter in their souls. We see that God's anointed attracts the worst class of people. And of course, we think about Jesus attracting not the elites in society, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the lepers and the outcasts. And these are the kind of people that David collects in this network of cave. And these uh, 400 growing to 600 will become the core of David's kingdom. Uh, the little germ at the beginning of what David is about to do. And then David moves on. He leaves Adullam. He goes to Moab in the opposite direction in the southeast of Israel. And Moab was another enemy that Saul had fought against. And the king here is very happy to see David. He's happy to host him under the very sound political principle that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And he also welcomes David's family, his aging parents, into his safekeeping. And it might not just be politics going on here because David himself is part Moabite. His great-grandmother Ruth had come from the land of Moab, and David has some kinship claims on the Moabites. These are, after all, distant relatives 
of him. And we see how God's providential work a hundred years ago and that wonderful story in the book of Ruth now a century later is bearing fruit for him and his family. God is not often mentioned directly in these chapters, but behind the scenes, God is quietly working to care for David, to provide for him, to protect him. And there his family is in Moab, seemingly secure from Saul. They're in the stronghold, which is a great place to be. But then Gad, the prophet, shows up. Saul cannot and will not hear from God, but David has the prophet with him. He's hearing the voice of God. And the words of the prophet are very straightforward. Do not remain in the stronghold. Go back to Judah. The very first prophetic word that David receives is to leave the place of safety, to leave the human stronghold, because David needs to learn that God himself will be David's stronghold and his refuge, the safe place to which he can always run. And prophetic word to receive. But to David's credit, he obeys without question. He leaves the safe place and he goes on the run once more. Okay, let's continue reading. Chapter 22, verse 6. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. And David said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab, and he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitab, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitab. And he answered, here I am, my Lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I've inquired of God for him? No, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. 
And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. The narrator has turned his attention from David back to Saul. David is hiding out in his caves in the forests, but Saul is out in the open. He's at ease. He's in a position of power, sitting under the tree on the hilltop, surrounded by his commanders. And we notice, by the way, that all of Saul's uh, men, all his political appointees, they're all from Benjamin. It's the smallest and the weakest of all the tribes, but it's also Saul's own tribe. And for Saul, I don't think this is primarily about favoritism or nepotism. Nepotism. This is about fear. The circle of people that Saul will trust is small, and it's getting smaller and smaller. But now when Saul hears the latest intelligence about David, he accuses even these loyalists of being in, se in secret sympathy with David. He imagines that David is lying awake, waiting the chance to assassinate him, and he's feeling bitterly sorry for himself. Sorry that even his own son is in league with David. Sorry that no one has pity on the poor, suffering king. And I imagine there was an embarrassed silence that followed this outburst from the king. And I imagine his servants have learned to tread very carefully around their paranoid and unbalanced monarch. It's unsafe to speak around Saul. It's dangerous to trigger him. But Doeg the Edomite is standing there beside the servants, and he sees his chance. He speaks, and he, he gives a carefully edited at Nob. He hides any evidence of Abimelech's innocence of David's intention, and Doeg chooses the words most likely to, fuels, to fuel Saul's suspicions and to enrage him with fear and paranoia. And Saul summons Ahimelech, he summons his whole family from Nob, and when they arrive, Saul bursts forth in angry accusation. Ahimelech, he's respectful, but he holds his ground because neither him nor David have done anything disloyal or treacherous. But Saul shuts his ears to this defense. In his mind, religion exists only to serve the state. It's not for the outcast or the fugitive. It's for the state. And if the, highest, if the priest's highest loyalty is not to Saul, he deserves to be executed. All the priests deserve death. We see Saul's tragic journey of a man who's going from bad to worse. He's not just resisting God. He's become a tyrant who's, who's put himself in God's place, who's demanding loyalty that only belongs to God. But Saul's servants want nothing to do with slaughtering these priests. They're afraid of Saul, but they're even more afraid of inviting God's wrath upon themselves. But Doeg the Edomite has no hesitations like this. He has no compunctions. He's eager 
to obey this order. In fact, he goes far beyond what Saul commands because he not only stabs these 85 defenseless priests, he goes down the road and wipes out the entire town of Nob. Women, children, and animals are put to the sword. It's a terrifying orgy of mass murder. I think in the story that Doeg represents irrational, demonic evil that exists only to kill. It's the seed of the serpent. It's a kind of antichrist figure trying to destroy God's people. It's a terrible episode in Israel's history. And there's just a few more verses as this chapter concludes. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day, when Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me, you shall be in safekeeping. One member of the family, and only one member, has escaped the slaughter. Abiathar flees to David for protection. And now both prophet and priest have abandoned Saul and come to be with David. Far from power, but there's this increasing confidence that God is with David. But it's a terrible story Abiathar brings. And when, Saul, when David hears this tale of mass murder, he's weighed down with guilt and regret. He didn't cause this directly, but he occasioned it indirectly with his dishonesty, his cleverness, his deceit in the way that he asked for the bread and the sword at Nob. And now others have suffered terribly for David's poor choices. And the least he can do now is to take Abiathar under his wing. With me, you shall be in safekeeping. You know, I think in these two chapters, we see that David's learning something about true kingship. It's more than personal destiny, and it's more than private safety. David has to learn that being the king is about protecting the weak and providing for the needy. At the beginning of chapter one, David is consumed very understandably with his personal safety. And he makes choices, thoughtless choices that lead to the death, to the massacre of an entire innocent town. It's a painful lesson for David to learn. And David, as he goes on in the story, finds himself having to take responsibility for those who come to him. Taking responsibility for his own family who are in fear for their lives. Taking responsibility for those who come to him who are in distress and in debt and in bitterness of soul. And these people must be given hope and purpose. And in the end, David must take the traumatized survivor of a mass murder under his wings to give him safety and security and healing. You know, these Old Testament passages are 
difficult passages, and they're not easy for us to interpret and to find, you know, obvious spiritual lessons in. But here is David, who seems further from the throne than ever. But really, his time on the fringes is part of God's plan, part of God's story in David's life. David has to learn how to walk by faith in God because he's not ready to be king yet. He has to learn not to trust in his, in his, in his own resources, his own cleverness, or in other human strongholds. David has to learn to look to God to take care of him. And only then will he be ready to be the king. And along the way, God protects and provides for David, not because David's perfect, but because he has a heart for God and because God loves him. And here all of us are. We're also on a journey of faith. And sometimes it feels clear and sometimes we feel very confident that we're in the center of God's will and things are going well, but often it seems like we're all over the map. We're wandering the land, we're wrestling with our own fears and doubts, and along the way, we sadly make bad judgments, and we accidentally hurt other people. But in the process, God is also shaping us into men and women after his own hearts. And just because we feel lost, and just because we're wandering, doesn't mean that we're imperfect people who are loved by God. We're the losers, we're the outcasts who have fled to Jesus, to God's anointed for protection and provision and leadership. And we are just the kind of people that Christ is building his kingdom around. The distressed, the indebted, the disgruntled. These are the ones that God chooses to begin with, not with the strong and wise and powerful of the world, but with us. So we'll find in these stories that David is a good man, but he's also deeply imperfect. He's very flawed. And he points past himself to Christ as God's true anointed, the true king that we all need. As we reflect on these chapters, we can be so thankful that Jesus is like David, but he's much better than David. Jesus does not make David's mistakes, and he does not have David's flaws. Jesus is not the kind of king who thoughtlessly risks the life of others as he flees for personal safety. Instead, Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his own life for his sheep, who goes into danger and death and sacrifices himself for his people. That is the king that we're following. And you know what? As long as we're following Jesus, as long as we're hiding out in the cave with him, even if we're imperfect, and of course we always are, God promises he will take care of us. He will provide for our needs. He will protect us from our enemies. And he will bring us safe into Jesus' kingdom at last. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you always take care of your children. You know our flaws. 
You know our weaknesses, you know our temptations and our sins. And yet, you are not angry with us, but you have compassion on us because you are a God of kindness and of mercy. Lord, help us to grow in trusting you rather than our own devices. Give us eyes that sense you watching over us, giving us bread when we are hungry, saving us from danger when we are about to fall, guiding us when we choose the wrong path. All our hope is in Jesus, your chosen king, the one to whom we have fled for refuge. In his name we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.